Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast, where we discuss films from every genre. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Merry Christmas, listeners. Thank you so much for joining us for our Christmas Day special. And this is our first Christmas Day special. It is, yeah. And we're doing it in the same room. Wow. Yes, Alan and I are united once again for Christmas break. Honestly, it's my last Christmas break, listeners, uh, before I graduate college and I become a real grown-up out in the real world. <laughs> wow. I will be graduating, I think this might be my last Christmas break. No, yeah. I got one. Technically, I have one more. I'll finish that next semester, but I won't graduate until that May because I got to wait to walk the stage. Well, we kind of like doing these holiday specials, and we want to do that from now on. I know we just released the Halloween special, so if you're in the mood, go ahead and go back and listen to that in December. But we will be doing some more uh, holiday specials throughout the year from now on, and we felt like It's a Wonderful Life would be a great way to begin the Christmas special and a great movie to review for Christmas 2017. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that this has kind of been a family tradition for my family. We watch this every year, and um, it isn't until this time where I really sat down to really analyze this movie, and I got so much more out of it, and we'll have a lot to talk about uh, for the next I don't know, however long however long this podcast is. Well, It's a Wonderful Life was released December 20th, 1946. And it was actually adapted from the short story, The Greatest Gift, by Philip Van Doren Stern. And Philip, Philip, oh gosh, I'm not going to try and say that name again. Uh, Stern had trouble getting that short story produced, or published, I should say. So he wrote it on a Christmas card and just sent it to a bunch of his family and friends. And somehow some studio executives and RKO Pictures or some other company heard about it. And they contacted him and they got the rights to adapt it into a movie, which is a really neat story, actually. And ultimately it was Frank Capra who was able to adapt it. Now, Frank Capra uh, was an established name in Hollywood. He had done It Happened One Night... Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, which is also a Jimmy Stewart movie, a great movie. I recommend it. Uh, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. And Frank Capra had also been nominated for six Academy Awards. He won three of them. So, yeah, the whole time he was nominated for Best Director. For Lady for a Day, it happened one night. Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. You Can't Take It With You. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And It's a Wonderful Life. Now, what's funny is, like I said, he won three of those, and they're really in close succession. So in 33, he was nominated. In 34, he won. The next year, he won Best Director again. And then in 32 years later, in 37, but yes, nevertheless, he, he kept winning all these different times and in really, really close succession within one or two years. Like the next year, he would win and be nominated and then... Yeah. Yeah. Not not very common, honestly. Right. And it's actually kind of interesting because It's a Wonderful Life got nominated for a bunch of Oscars. Yes. But this is kind of one of those cases where the audience didn't really find it very interesting because the money that came in was – this movie 
barely made back its budget in the box office when it was all said and done. Not the re-release back in, uh, I think, 2007? Um, but back in when it was first released in, nine, in 47 or 46, depending on um, depending where you're at, it, it kind of didn't make back very much money that, it, that the budget was, which is kind of interesting. Very interesting. And it's also interesting that this movie required four writers? Yeah. So it was written by Francis Goodrich, Albert Hackett, Joe Swirling, and Frank Capra. Now, I'm sure they weren't all working on the screenplay. Like, Frank Capra probably did the story. And, but, yeah, I don't know. Normally, movies that require a lot of writers normally need some help. That's why there's so many writers. Or they get very confusing between plots and tones because mm -hmm. you get different voices coming in. I don't see that with this movie. Yeah, neither do I. This one, although it has four writers, it they, they very much share the exact same vision. Yes. And j just for those who don't know who's starring in it, Jimmy Stewart, Donna Reed, Lionel Barrymore, Henry Travers, Thomas Mitchell, uh, Belua Bondi, and Todd Carnes. Now, I know there's a lot more people... Starring in this movie, but where do you cut off at some point? Yeah. You there, can't name everybody. Yeah, there's a lot of main characters. These are the mainest characters, I guess. The film has an 8.6 on IMDb. That's solid. That is so great. And it is number 24 in the top rated movies. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. It's kind of one of those Citizen Kane situations. When it came out, it was poorly received, even though it had a lot of Academy attention but then years later, does it be? Everybody realizes oh, this is one of the greatest movies ever made. Right, it's right. Funny how it works out that way. Yeah, and I think this would be a good time to start talking about this situation with it and its copyright uh, holder and it going into the public domain, because this movie had a really interesting time with its run in in terms of copyright, and then it moved into the public domain, and then all sorts of crazy things happened. Now. But they, of course, now is owned by. Um, Liberty Films, but at the time, between, I think it was, ooh, it was, what, the 60s to 93, it was in, it was considered to be in the public domain, if I'm not mistaken. That sounds about right, which is shocking. Yeah. This movie, that's incredibly rare for a movie like this to be in the public domain. Right. Very weird. Right. And I believe what had happened is there was an error when it came to figuring out the copyright for it. I forget what exactly happened. It's a muddled story. It really is. There's a lot of different things that happened. So, but what? Ha but anyways, what happened was after it moved into the public domain, there got, there came out another film um, that was just like it. And the only thing they changed really was that it was now a female lead. And I think that was basically about it. It was only released on television once. Um, and it was essentially just the exact same story. I know we checked out a couple of clips and they were almost word for word the exact same as, as A Wonderful Life. Yeah, it came out in 1977. The time period is a little earlier than this movie. And I think it's called It Happened One Christmas. I believe it's what it's called. And you can actually watch the full movie on YouTube. It has never been... Yeah, it was shown on TV... Not very much, like one or two years, and it's never been released uh, on home video, but somehow somebody got a copy of it to throw up on YouTube. So that would definitely be worth checking out. It's, it's very interesting. Yeah, the names are kind of switched around. Instead of George Bailey, 
it's Mary Bailey, mm-hmm. and instead of Mary Hatch- Hatchet or Hatcher, I think it's Hatch. Hatch, that's it. Mary Hatch. It's George Hatch. Yeah, interesting. But like we said, this movie was it, it garnered some critical acclaim, at least from the Academy. Because it was nominated for five Academy Awards, mm-hmm. including Best Picture. Jamie Stewart was nominated for Best Actor. Uh, Frank Capra, Best Director. And Best Sound Recording and Best Film Editing. Uh, this movie was distributed, or I don't know, distributed, produced by RKO, which had done a lot of things at the time. Um, most notably, probably, is the original King Kong. That's right, yeah. And surprisingly... RKO still might be around. That's interesting. If I'm not mistaken, Are We Done Yet was put out by RKO Pictures. Wow. They've got an updated logo. It looks very different. But I I was shocked to see it. They're really not doing a whole lot, if anything. Maybe that was their last one out there. But I know I've seen them around, you know, within this century. But there's not a whole lot of budget and box off information because, well, this movie came out in 46 and that kind of stuff really wasn't uh, as reported and talked about as it was today. Of course, it was still important for the studio to make a good profit off the film, but budget and box office is talked about so often today and compared and whatnot. It's all about the money now, which this movie actually does kind of get into about money and stuff like that. Yeah, that's true. Well, the budget we figured out was a little over $3 million. So adjusting for inflation, that'd probably be around $35.6 million, which by today's standards would be a small budget film. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be a, yeah, a pretty small budget, especially when it comes to something from Hollywood that's really small. Right, and it, and it's really too bad because this movie, because of how poorly it did originally, it confirmed to like the Hollywood studio executives that Frank Capra was really no longer the in-demand director that he once was. Uh, this movie also has a very high spot on AFI's when it first came out, the AFI greatest films list. This movie was number 11 and it currently holds the number one spot for uh, the American Film Institute's most inspirational film. Interesting. I know that. And I guess we should note that it did win a Golden Globe for best director yeah not nearly as popular i know the golden globes were released just a couple weeks ago um but yeah not nearly as big as the oscars but they still hold a pretty pretty are still pretty important right and uh, we also should note i didn't okay i might have known this but i forgot alan watched the colorized version and yes. i've never seen the colorized version yeah now i usually watch the black and white but for this review i was curious to see what what uh, it would look like in color. So I watched it. It'd be really interesting. It was done by Colori- Colorization Incorporated. Uh, they also colorized um, some Cary Grant movies and possibly some other uh, Frank Capra movies, although there was some more dispute about this being in the public domain, whether they could color it or not. But yes, uh, I own the DVD. It doesn't come with that. Um, Alan's Blu-ray special copy did come with the colorized version. I would be very interested in seeing that. I don't think I've really seen many black and white films recolorized. I know that uh, Citizen Kane is one they've always wanted to recolorize, and Orson Welles would not have it at all. 
And funny connection, Orson Welles plays Mr. Potter in the 1977 remake. Yeah, that was mentioned. That's really interesting. Which is a great choice. I think it's an awesome choice. And from the little bit we did see it, I thought it really worked. Mm -hmm. Well, also, we should note that this movie has been adapted to the stage and radio a number of times throughout the decades and uh, the story has become wildly popular and just the concept of you know i never wish i was born and this and that uh, that's kind of already derived from charles dickens a uh, christmas carol so you can see the similarities with that but even in more modern context, the the one that immediately comes to mind is the Santa Claus 3, the Escape Clause. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> but you know this kind of concept uh, has really been has, – has, they've just ran with it. Yeah. You know, where, oh, gosh, what would my life be like if I wasn't a part of it or if I was a stranger in my life or something like that. So right. we also should say that we learned so much – about this uh, movie that I never knew a lot about this. When we started delving into the history, pretty much everything we're, we're telling you has been a revelation to me. Same. So there was actually going to be a potential sequel. Yes, that's right. There was going to be a potential sequel to It's a Wonderful Life. Now, I assumed the sequel was going to be, I don't know, a year or two afterwards. But no, this was going to be a sequel for 2015. I can't imagine that. Um, yeah, that's pushing it. By far. I, I mean, some of the biggest sequel gaps have been, well, in recent memory, like Blade Runner. Yeah, that's right. But yeah. even then, there's that's totally different. Because between 40, 1947 and 2015, you couldn't capture, you couldn't really capture the same feel, I don't think. Now, maybe you could, and it'd be amazing, but... Yeah, society and Hollywood has changed a lot between, oh gosh, however many years that is. Like 70, 80 something? Some crazy like that. It's almost, I don't think there's ever been such a thing done before, honestly. Listeners, if you know better than me, um, then go ahead and comment if there's ever been a sequel to a movie nearly a century later. Mm-hmm. Well, this movie was going to be called It's a Wonderful Life, The Rest of the Story. And it was going to follow the angel of George Bailey's daughter, Zuzu, as she teaches uh, Bailey's evil grandson how different the world would have been if he had never been born. The film was hopefully going to be around 25 to $35 million budget, which is would be pretty much the same budget if for the original, as we just discussed. And... I don't know. I've never heard of these production companies that were going to do it, and they weren't affiliated with Paramount Pictures. Again, this calls up the copyright dispute because some of the the, the people making the movie were claiming that It's a Wonderful Life, you know, still had some kind of existence within the public domain for them to do it, but apparently a Paramount spokesperson said they were not going to grant permission to make the film. Uh, There's a quote that says, To date, these individuals have not obtained any of the necessary rights, and we would take all appropriate steps to protect those rights. And that's it. There's there's been nothing about it since. 
I highly doubt there will ever be a sequel. And honestly, nor should there probably be a sequel yeah. to this movie. I don't think that this is one of those that needs one. I know we talked to just a second ago about Blade Runner, but I feel like, and we talked about this in the review, that one actually almost warranted a sequel just because it, there had been enough time that had passed and it would have been an important uh, topic to talk about. This one, I don't think it really needs a sequel. Kind of the same with Citizen Kane or, or maybe even the play that was adapted into a screen Onto the, onto the silver screen rope. Those are just some of those that you don't need a sequel to. They're fine just the way that they are. Exactly. And there has been spinoffs that we talked about. Uh, for instance, in 1991, there was a made-for-television film called Clarence, uh, which starred Robert Carradine in a new tale about the Clarence the Angel. And, of course, we talked about the 77 film It Happened One Christmas. And there was also stage plays... Uh, in 97, PBS aired Merry Christmas, George Bailey, which was taped from a live performance of the 1947 Lux Radio Theater script at the Pasadena Playhouse. So these aren't really movies per se. I mean, the, the, the movie Clarence is, yes, it is, but these are more like taped stage plays, which are very, very different than an actual movie. Yeah. Uh, there's no comparison. They're, they're totally different. Right. Well, and okay, before we start talking about the movie and before we start talking about uh, the connection with the short story and the similarities, we want to say that, of course, we are going to spoil It's a Wonderful Life. And I don't think this is a movie, even though this came out, yeah, about 80 some odd years ago, it seems like, I don't think this movie should be spoiled for you. So I really recommend that you uh, hit pause. We've given you some warning as to the Christmas Day special, so hopefully it wasn't too much of a surprise we were putting this out. But hey, it's Christmas Day, so hit pause, go watch It's a Wonderful Life. It's only about two hours long, and then come back and listen to our thoughts uh, about the movie, because I don't want it to be spoiled for you. But you've been warned, we are now entering spoiler territory. Okay. I first want to briefly talk about the short story, The Greatest Gift. Yeah, I know that we read that uh, just a little bit ago before we actually sat down to do this recording. Right. It's, it's very short. It's very short. It's not It's not long at all. So I do highly recommend actually reading it. Uh, it's pretty fascinating. Overall, it's very similar to, I guess, the basis of the movie. Uh, we, we encounter George Bailey on a bridge and the angel comes i believe the angel is unnamed yeah they don't i don't think he named him right and george uh doesn't jump in the water he just says i wish i was never born and yeah so then he goes and he does find the tree mm -hmm. that was all scraped up kind of like in the movie he doesn't work for a building and loans company he works for a bank that had no connection to his family he was just hired there uh, we meet this new character, this new real estate character named uh, Silva, like John Silva, something like that. And he goes to his parents. His father is not dead. Mm -hmm. Everybody is friendly in this new world, whereas yeah. in the other one, everybody is inc is incredibly unfriendly. Right. Uh, they're still friendly. We do learn that his f uh, brother died 
swimming in the summer in late summer whereas in this one it takes place in the winter um, he falls through the ice so they did change that he died then uh, we do get a reference to mr potter but he is not this rich uh, miser real estate tycoon apparently he's just a photographer yeah not a menacing character at all and it's he's mentioned in passing pretty much right yeah this entire short story is essentially the last 30 minutes of the movie that's basically what the short story of it's a wonderful life is based off of that's where it, if you were to put it into the movie that's where it would fit yeah it, it would and he does go find his wife mary who only has two children whereas i believe in the movie he has three and mary is not this unmarried librarian spinster she is married to uh, I guess one of his friends, she was married to one of his friends who was kind of a drunk, and some of the names in these in this short story are similar. They just kind of reassigned it to different characters, it seems like. Oh, we also know that this doesn't deal with the Great Depression. It deals with some, some guy in town who worked at the bank, like stole $50,000 of everybody's money, but we can still see the connection to people kind of losing their money. Uh, George, it's really hard for him to see Mary... But there still are like these small connections like they like the couch they picked out together is the couch she picked out with her with her husband in this alternate universe. And eventually he runs back to the bridge and says, you're right. I wish that I was alive. My life is really great. You know, it is a wonderful life that's not used in the short story, but you, you get the message. And then he goes back to see first he goes to see his parents mm-hmm which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, and I, I believe I already mentioned it, but his dad did not die from a heart attack in yeah. this one. Right. And his he goes to see his wife and his kids. And I thought it was kind of a cool twist uh, because the, the angel tells him to pretend to be a uh, salesman late at night, <laughs> this late at night on Christmas Eve. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a little surprising. But he's supposed to be selling uh, brushes. Now, I guess these are not necessarily hairbrushes because Mary combs her couch. Uh, I've never heard of such a thing. It's uh, the 40s, I guess. <laughs> the 40s, you combed your couch. But it's kind of a cool thing because in the alternate reality, he gives her the comb to comb the couch with. And she loves it. And then he brings her downstairs once they're back together and starts kissing her. And he realizes... Without looking, he knows what it is. It's the exact same brush that he got. And so it's kind of a cool twist crossover between those realities. I, right. I thought that was pretty neat. Yeah. Yeah. So overall, it's a good short story, but I do think the movie did the right thing. Normally, people are mad when the filmmakers deviate from the source material, but I think they did the right thing by deviating from the source material and they kind of kept the similar gist of it. But they fleshed out, they added a lot more characters. They really fleshed out the situation and the changes made a lot of sense. Yeah. And another kind of example of a movie kind of taking on a short story would be uh, The Shawshank Redemption, mm. which definitely took, which is almost, almost verbatim, the short story written by Stephen King. And I know, I remember we had to read that in high, my high school once and reread it and it was pretty close to the actual movie. Of course, the movie takes a little bit more liberties and stuff, but for the most part, they're pretty, they're pretty similar. This one is a very different because it only take, this short story only takes place about the last 30 minutes of the movie. 
and the rest of the everything else in the movie is added on to aid in that ending. Before we jump into the movie, do you want to tell the listeners what this movie is rated? Yeah, so this is kind of interesting. Depending on where you look and what time the movie that you have is published, it could be either not rated, um, which I'm sure it means approved back in 1946, or on my Blu-ray it says PG for, I think, thematic elements and some smoking. So my guess is when it was re-released in 2007, they redid the rating. The MPAA went back and they redid what they figured the movie should be. So I thought that was very interesting. I didn't know that it was not rated until uh, just not so long ago. I think that's kind of funny it's PG because I think this movie could get away with G. Uh, I understand there is some more kind of adult things like when mary says because mary's mom says what are you two doing down there and she says he's making violent love to me mother yeah um things like that i guess the kind of the steedy life of pottersville maybe a little much um, yeah the ending when he's on the bridge about to throw himself off so, right. yeah yeah contemplating suicide i guess a little bit of violence yeah there's also when mr gower boxes his ears make some bleed Mm -hmm. um so i mean okay i guess i can see pg but i think your kids could be okay they some of that stuff wouldn't mean anything to them or maybe some of the violent parts you know just quickly skip over them yeah tell them it's okay but it just seemed kind of funny pg parental guidance yeah it it is thematic elements (laughs) and smoking but let's go ahead and jump into it okay yeah so the scene opens actually towards the ending of the movie, funny enough, because it begins with, it shows a bunch of houses of people praying for this guy named George we haven't met yet. And um, essentially, the after it shows a number of houses, it goes up into like, the universe or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I think it's God in talking yeah. to Gabriel. Yeah. It the God has never really said, but I'm just what I'm just kinda of what I'm assuming. And then they get Clarence over there and they're just like, Hey, we need you to check out George Bailey, but first we gotta tell you his backstory. Right. And I guess it's kind of one of those movies where it starts at the end and then you go all the way back to the beginning until it's not as on the nose as some mm-hmm. movies today where it's like, Oh, that's the scene from the beginning. You know? It's not really like that. But uh, I don't know. I'm kind of confused. It's, it's almost kind of like a like a flashback within mm-hmm. a flashback in some ways. Kind of. It's it's not necessarily a scene that takes place at the very end of the movie. It ended, but then shows you how it got there. That's kind of the case here. It's more of just this is... It kind of goes to show just the desperation that's going to happen there towards the end. This scene would actually fit best in about about 20-ish minutes from the end right when uh, George Bailey is really considering and and he kind of goes a bit nuts. So what do you think of this beginning, though? Because I always felt this beginning was kind of confusing in a way and didn't really work. Uh, See, I kind of feel the exact opposite because this opening really makes me ask, well, what happened to George Bailey, you know? Yeah. And And then, of course, the movie moves on and shows you exactly what happens to George Bailey. I think this is a really good opening just to kind of capture the audience and be like, oh, who's George Bailey? What's wrong with him? You know, things like that. Yeah, for some reason it always seemed like 
too confusing to me because then we don't return to that until like an hour and 40 minutes later. Yeah, that's that true. whole thing. So I don't know. I guess I can see it, but I don't know. There's a little confusion there for me. Yeah, no, I agree. There, It can be very confusing. Yeah, just probably the connectivity of it. Mm. Well, but that's a good point. It does it does make you question, well, okay, what's going on? Yeah. But I did think it was always super cheesy ever since I was little with the heavens. With We see, like, these stars, and the stars are talking with, like, little flashes to denote their, their speaking. Yeah. Uh, I don't think audiences thought it worked back then. Doesn't work today. It's it's just silly. Yeah, it's it's very much. A, I think this kind of just goes to show this is a family picture. Mm-hmm. It's um, not not necessarily to say that it's not supposed to be taken seriously because it does there towards the end. But I think it's just kind of going to show it. I because I've always wondered just just this is of course way out of context of the homie. But how theologically sound is this opening in the first place? Oh, with these galaxies talking and things like that, and representing God and Gabriel and the angels. Right. I think that's. Yeah, I think that's kind of always been a thought. Is like, oh, heaven is up in space. You know, hell is in the center of the earth, and there's the these like celestial bodies, and that's where the angels are, and they're talking, and it's kind of a very basic, almost childlike mentality way of portraying it. And I don't know. I mean, they could have done something silly, like some. Well, you know, honestly, they probably wouldn't have shown God as like some old guy with a white beard because it probably would have been considered really blasphemous that's true back in those days uh i don't think audiences would have cared for that any better so i do think it kind of leaves some of it up to your imagination and just kind of is more of this childlike wonder i guess and it kind of leaves us up to seeing what clarence looks like because i I like clarence's voice Mm -hmm. he's kind of got a fun voice right and there is also one interesting detail that comes up and it's brought back later when Clarence actually comes into play. And that's that he has a book to name the book Adventures of Tom Sawyer with yes. him. And I always thought that was just really funny that a an angel has that kind of book and he really likes that book and stuff. It's kind of funny because, yeah, because when he does come back, it he comes back like at the point of when he died because mm-hmm. he still has like his books with him and his same clothes and <laughs> yeah but he, the uh nightgown that he died in and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was so funny yeah it goes kind of towards the the flashbacks yeah right starting when he was a kid right and this is now this is kind of where i have an issue with the colorized version oh um this is where and I'll give my thoughts of which one, which version, if I went, if I think you should watch the colorized or the black and white at the end. But this is kind of where the colorized version kind of shows that the movie is on a set. Mm. Um, you can tell with the colorized version here where the backdrop is at and how much is set and how much is a painting, essentially. It, it kind of does go to show here that this is not necessarily real. Um, this opening scene with them sliding down the hill into the, the uh, frozen lake. Uh, yeah, that probably makes more sense that the black and white would be able to hide the fact a little better. But I think this movie does a really good job with pacing. It, oh, yes. Mm. Yes, it absolutely does. Especially in this viewing when I was uh, watching it. And I was really, like with the silver screen guide eye, I was just like, man, this movie moves 
so fast mm-hmm. at times. Like things were just happening one after another and I had to pause it so I could write down, I could finish <laughs> writing down my notes and then write down my notes for that scene and then I can go. And there, it took me a little bit longer to finish this one than it normally would just because I had to pause it a couple of times because it just moves so quick. And this is almost kind of different than what usual movies back then do. They move a bit slower oh, normally. Yeah. And that that's true. They do move a bit slower. Now, this movie is over two hours long. That's true. Which is pretty normal for movies back then to be over that long. Mm. And even though the pacing, it's really well paced, there's still a lot that happens. Oh, yeah. Like, by the time you get towards the end, you're like, whoa. Like, we. I feel, I don't know, I feel like we've come pretty far. Yeah. No, yeah, there's... This movie moves really, really well. It's. I know that we, in our Silence of the Lambs podcast, and I know I keep bringing this up, but uh, we talked about how the editing of that movie definitely shows how much pace, how much pace is integral to the story, and how we thought that every scene m- morphed into the next scene so seamlessly that the movie came off as just a almost as a single unit, not a collection of scenes. Mm-hmm. This one is definitely on that same level where it's uh, it's not a collection of scenes more more or less it's a collection of time periods but in those time periods there are several scenes in between that but they work so well together they they're like as as i could say stitched together like a canvas or maybe even a quilt or something like that Mm, yeah that's a good point so and i do kind of want to talk about the opening scene with him and his brother this kind of goes this kind of course builds up uh, George Bailey's character as someone who is willing to take action because I know that in this scene his brother falls into the ice he slides really far down this frozen lake and then <laughs> falls into the hole uh, falls, falls into the hole in the ice and then almost drowns and so George jumps in there and saves him and um, because of this he busts out his ear which he can't hear out of is I think his left one yeah and this of course comes back into play later in the movie and and then or even in the next scene when he's working with uh Mr. Gower and Mary I think leans down and says George Bailey I love you to the day I die and unbeknownst to him he has no idea what she said <laughs> I do like the foreshadowing in this movie and I like how it shows how these consequences from his kind of young childhood have effects mm-hmm. into his future and exactly he, that's what he ponders and thinks about and that kind of ties back to the end because Clarence is like, why is he in this position? And it's not just because you can get caught up thinking like, oh, it's just because of the events that happened the previous day or the or that same day with mm-hmm. losing the money, you know, but it's really not. It's been kind of a culmination building inside of him. Like he's always been grateful, but when, I don't know, we can fall into this like pitiable, like, you know, woe is me. I never got to do whatever I wanted. You know, I've always had to live for everybody else. And I think the movie teaches a good lesson. Oh, yeah. On it definitely that. does. But I like how it shows, like, no, this is an effect beginning from childhood. Yeah. And then you get to see once the change happens, like, whoa, well, don't you remember that happened when you were a kid? Mm-hmm. And that's made, like, huge ramifications and multiple people died because of it or not just one person died. Like, there's just huge ripple effects. And yeah. It's really well done. Yeah. And this also kind of... Um, dives deeper into the Mr. Gower situation because Mr. Gower, his kid is in the hospital when George comes to work that day. and Or I guess it's not that day, it's a little bit after because of him falling in the ice. Um, but he goes to work and Mr. Gower is not doing good. In fact, this is our introduction <laughs> to Mr. Gower, which is almost the exact same as we see him in the alternate timeline yeah. um, with 
Bedford Falls, or yeah. I guess at that point it's Pottersville, right. and how he's just like this drunkard in the sky, and you he, he almost is like a non-functioning human because he yep. kind of just wanders in and things like that. Yeah. In this one, it's very clear that he's very distressed, and it's because his kid's in the hospital, and he tries to um, get some pills and put some uh, medicine in the capsules. Come to find out it's poison. And yeah. Mr. Gower is just not, I guess he's either not with it or he is, or it's a complete accident. But George notices this and um, after slapping him and things like that and uh, Mr. Gower beating him, he says his poison is poison. It kind of wakes him up. And this kind of goes to show that in the alternate timeline, this didn't happen with, with him in, intervening with Gower. And so he was in the jail and he's like all kinds of just messed up in the alternate timeline. Yeah. This movie deals a lot with death also. Yeah. Like, even though it's called It's a Wonderful Life, there's a lot of talk of death or the potential for death or something like that. Mm-hmm. Because if I am if I remember correctly, the letter said that Mr. Gower's son had died. Yes. And that's why he is so distraught that he nearly kills somebody else, uh, which would be the lady... That they're bringing the pills to, and of course, right before that, George's kid brother nearly drowns right. and dies. And a little later on, we see his dad die. Yeah, which is pretty hard. But honestly, just speaking about this scene, this—I think this is a hard scene to watch. It really is. This scene, this actually takes place over, I think, a couple of scenes. Um, but the second time when he comes back and Mr. Gower is kind of really loses his mind. Yeah, it's this is kind of where the movie is kind of poking at what is going to happen later on and how hard this movie is actually going to hit when it gets to that point. So, yeah, no, I really, really do enjoy this scene. Um, now, it's not long after this. Um, now, of course, I, I forgot to mention one thing that we do meet Mary and... Violet in this mm-hmm. scene as well, a bit earlier. And Violet has always been kind of going to show that she's a bit <laughs> flirty and Mary <laughs> is not so. And it, it, I didn't notice this actually in my uh, initial viewings, but mm-hmm. this last one, I noticed it this time. This this is Mary and Violet in the in the store. And yeah. it's always them two oh, yeah. the love interests. I never noticed that. Yeah. For some reason, my mind has never made that connection. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah. I get it now. <laughs> so. Yeah. It, it's really cool to see their characters... We don't really see them growing, but we can still see how similar they are mm-hmm. from kid to... And then it kind of jumps to them in late teens, early 20s, right? right? There's even that line that George has, I think, with I think with Violet. I can't remember which one, which girl that he talks to. But he says, you don't like coconut? Say, brain this. Don't you know where coconuts come from? And he pulls out this newspaper from his, from his pocket and shows her on whatever it is. And it kind of just even sets up the fact that George Bailey knows a lot of, the, a lot of things as well and then he has a lot of aspirations to do more than just whatever he's doing now yeah there's i think there is a lot of good character depth with these characters because Mm -hmm. from childhood he wanted to kind of be an explorer and a traveler and we constantly see him trying to figure that out and especially when we jump to him when he's in his early 20s and he's getting the suitcase Mm -hmm. to go and travel but we also see violet really doesn't have much to do with her life yeah we see mary has always just kind of wanted to be a stay-at-home mom and just you know have a good husband and she wants that to be george i always forget that there's that connection between them like he never really noticed her that much but she's you know like i'll love you forever Mm -hmm. and uh they clearly don't have a relationship until they meet at the dance yeah 
um, that's kind of when they reunite probably in many, many years. Mm -hmm. It seems like now this dance scene is kind of funny though, because they've got adults there and chaperones there and all kinds of people there and they can drink there. Is that right? Yeah, This is the forties. Um, now I do believe this is a party for Harry. I thought um, it was like a high school party. See, that's what I th- kept thinking too. But there is a passing line in the dinner scene when uh, it's mentioned that it's a party for Harry. So I don't know if it's because he's going off to. I think it's because he's. Oh, it's because he's going off to college. That's what it's for. It, but that seems like too big of a party, though. And yeah, it's in, you're right. It isn't a, like a their gymnasium, which you're is right. super high tech because the floor can open up. And I think it's some kind of. I'll have to inspect that scene a little closer. It's some kind of. communal bash i thought it had to do with high school yeah honestly because i'm pretty sure mary either she's in high school i'm no she's in high school Mm -hmm. right yeah she's in like her later years in high school and also it should be noted we get a cameo from alfalfa from the little rascals wow he's the one dancing with mary and then jimmy stewart's like you know buzz off and (laughs) oh yeah now as i was saying you know yeah so oh, yeah. it's a really fun scene, but it, yeah. but a confusing one. Yeah. We, <laughs> yeah. But before see. but before we go any further, I actually want to take a step back real oh. quick and talk about the dinner scene okay. with him and his dad. Because I noticed something in this scene that I have never seen before in my seventeen other times seeing this movie. And that's the and that's how much foreshadowing there is of mm. the ending here in the scene. Oh wow. So let me give a little bit of context here. So dad is his dad is at this point running the uh building loan company. And um of course there's some issues with Potter as per usual. So the conversation I find to be really really important because it shows the difference in ideals between what uh Jimmy Stewart George wants to do versus his dad and what he wants to do. And his dad says that um this building alone is the only thing that can send up to Potter right now in this in this town, which is and is very clear and especially in the ending with Pottersville, P- Mr. Potter and even his character himself is like the embodiment of someone who's like obsessed with money, essentially. And so what his dad is saying is we're running a very trustworthy company here, and this is something that I think this is where I belong in my life, is to be here in Bedford Falls where I can uh help everybody out and give them something that's actually worth their money. Whereas George is very opposite of that because he wants to leave. He wants to get out of Bedford Falls so bad. Yeah. And there are so many chances that he has this, this one here in a second when he's getting ready to leave to go off and just kind of go traveling the world. But then his dad gets sick. Mm-hmm. Um, then later on when he gets married, he can't go because then the depression happens. Yeah. But it's very much a difference in ideals because his dad says, well, this is where my purpose in life is. And it's fine to just kind of hang out in this small town because that's where you're going to make the biggest impact because that's where your role in life is. Whereas George's role or as George's dream is to leave and to go and to go places and, and to see a bunch of stuff. And I find this very kind of a, it very much sets up the end because it shows that this in the very end of the movie, this is where George belongs in his life. Mm-hmm. This is Bedford Falls with the B&L and things like that. But he doesn't know that yet. And he doesn't really listen to what his dad is saying because he's just like, well, my life, I want to go places. I have dreams that are bigger than anything else. You know, And it's just so interesting listening this time into this conversation. Yeah, and we also see how it shapes his kind of moral character. 
because he's he's always looked up to his dad and we saw when he was a kid he was trying to stand up for his dad and he's always never liked Mr. Potter. Later on we do see that George is almost willing to sacrifice like what how like how hard he's worked and how hard his family's worked mm-hmm. and just kind of that moral integrity that his father taught him just so he could get what he wants. Yeah. Cuz he's wanted this all along and it's really it's like a lesson in like, you know, you don't always get what you want, but that's not really as important as what's best for your family yeah. or your friends around you. Yeah, it's essentially the that that this theme of uh, responsibility versus uh, selfishness. Yeah, it, it really is. And um, jumping back to Mary and George, I think they've got really great chemistry. Mm-hmm. They do. They really have great chemistry, and I like to see how their relationship develops. Mm-hmm. We don't really get to see very much of their relationship developing because it kind of jumps from that last date to them getting married. At least the stages. Yeah, yeah. Be- like because like when they're walking home, I I love the scene when they're oh, walking home. So good. Talking about lassoing the moon—that's a super famous line. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was really ornery when presumably she's naked in yeah. the bushes and george is like hmm i mean does it get into a situation like this every day we're in a very not, interesting <laughs> not a very interesting situation i mean does it get into this kind of thing every day yeah he's not in bedford falls anyway yeah <laughs> and uh it's just like really fun kind yeah. of playful banter back and forth but then it also kind of hinges upon uh because before that there were there's more foreshadowing about their home mm-hmm because he throws a rock in it, and she's like, no, I like it. You know, it's got this, you know, kind of dreamy quality. I've always thought about it. And it kind of touches upon, like, they're not kids anymore. Yeah. Especially dealing with her being naked in the bushes. and But he's still kind of acting like a kid. Instead of being a gentleman and giving it back to her, you know, it's just being more so ornery and right. joking around. But I don't know. That's a very interesting position for a relationship that really is new yeah. and young. Yeah. And I also kind of want to point out again, you have the difference in ideals where right. Mary doesn't exactly tell him what his what her wish is. We mm-hmm. find out later what it is. But in this scene alone, George throws the rock and then she goes, what do you wish for? And he's like, I want to go places. I want to see things and you know stuff like that. And then she tosses, and of course, she picks it up and tosses the rock. We find out later that she wanted to have, to have a family with George. She wanted to yeah. kind of just settle down and stay in Bedford Falls. That's kind of where she acts like she belongs. It once again goes to show there's that difference in ideals where um, she fi- she's found her place in society, which is here in Bedford Falls. And George thinks he does, but in reality, he doesn't. Yeah, and that's but that's great writing, though. Yeah. Presenting two characters, and that's very true to real life between, like, spouses and significant others. Um, even before they're your spouse, you kind of find that chemistry between the two where they complement the other person in different ways, you know? Right. Uh, and she really does. I think she really does. It's funny because George is like, I'll bring you the moon, but she's like, how about I bring you down to earth yeah, first? You exactly. Know? And I love how that, that line where he's like, you want the moon, Mary? Just say the word. I'll tie lasso around it and mm-hmm. pull it down. It, it kind of just goes to show, like we've been talking about here in this last few minutes, that he has these big ideas right. and things that he just wants. He wants to go and he wants to build things, as he says. And then Mary is just like, I want to stay here. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. George is always the dreamer. And she, she is too, but in a much more realistic way uh i I love how it works out yeah Uh, this whole scene is so so sweet yes 
But it's kind of undercut by some tragedy. Yeah. Because they just come up real quick on George, his uncle and brother, I believe. And they said, your father's, is it a heart attack or a stroke? It's a stroke. Okay. He's had a stroke. And yeah, that really kind of under undercuts some of that, what we've just been talking yeah. about. And that's what I'm saying. There is always this kind of constant like back and forth between like life and death. And, yeah. Like how precious life is, but... You know how death is kind of this catalyst for because eventually it just shows these people having to move on, mm-hmm. you know, with their life, and that's kind of shown through death or the possibility of death and just probably appreciating life more. Yeah, because he's having this conversation with his dad, and his dad's trying to be serious with him, and at the dinner table, and he's like, "Okay, you know," both right. the brothers are like, "Whatever, I get it, you know, that's your life, not mine." But then they're both faced with this, and it's kind of. It's interesting how his brother is the one that gets to go off yeah, and do stuff with his life. But George, in order to, I don't know, just protect his livelihood and his family, uh, he, he has to stay there. And ultimately, it ends up being the right choice. Yeah. And I love, too, how this movie is mixed with both uh, fantasy and then reality. Mm-hmm. Because you have... Uh, like like just in this scene alone, you have Mary and George and having a lot of fun and they're talking about, you know, I'll give you the moon and they're throwing rocks at uh, houses and then out of nowhere. And I think at the most appropriate time every year ever, uh, these two guys come up and say, hey, your dad's had a stroke. Yeah. Like it's the, and like that scene that they were, ta- that just happened, they were talking about the future and what they want to do in the future. Then reality hits and his dad has had a stroke and he has yeah. to leave. And then, of course, next thing we know, in the next scene, he's taking over the building alone and he's staying in Bedford Falls. Or, it, yeah, he ends up having to stay in Bedford oh, yeah. Falls. Well, it's very realistic because yeah. that's just how life is. Like, these kind of tragic moments come when you least expect and we get we get those throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're going off on their honeymoon and it's like, oh, wait, no, you can't go yet. Right. Or he's getting ready to go to Europe and just, I think he was going to school and then they're yeah. like, ah, you... But if you don't stay, then they're going to side with Potter. So exactly. you have to take over the helm. And then it has that great shot of uh, George Billy walking away. And he says, but they'll side with Potter if you if you yeah. leave. And he stops. And the music goes, bum. And yeah. he just kind of stares. I and, can't oh, do that. So good. Yeah. He, he's constantly hit with these choices. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. I always found the scene interesting because Mary goes away for a while, presumably uh, four years. Mm-hmm. for school i'm assuming she graduates and then four years later she she comes back and she is you know all dolled up really excited that he's there he is so rude to her yeah and, and her I, mom <laughs> yeah exactly i think it's kind of funny too because this Ugh. scene alone he um of course harry comes back and uh he has a wife now yeah and shock yeah shocking <laughs> and, shock. and even uh even george bailey he says meet the wife and she goes oh yeah what am I doing? You know, and he kind of gets his gets his head in the game, and then and then they all kind of run off. He kind of stands there for a minute, and he's like, ah, but ah, you know, because his brother kind of went off. And next thing you know, he's got a wife. But then they go home, and they're having this party for Harry. You know, he's back and all sorts of stuff. And everyone rolls inside. And he's just kind of out, just kind of out there. And his uncle walks off. You know, kind of walks off drunkily and stuff. And he's just kind of standing <laughs> there on the porch, just kind of yeah, like, well, now what? And mm-hmm. then his mom is like, hey. You should go visit Mary. And then you see him. He walks down the steps and he says, I point me in the right direction. And she points him to the right. And he, and he walks that way and walks the other way and says, okay, bye, mom. 
And then, yeah. and then it's kind of going to show that he, at least in this point of his life, it's like he's not making decisions for himself anymore. And he's kind of depressed. And that's kind of why he's acting so rude when he goes over to Mary's. Right. Exactly. Because he wants to go towards the big city. He wants to go towards adventure, mm-hmm. you know, the big city lights. He doesn't want what his parents want because he feels like he's following back into their footsteps and living their life instead of living his own life. So his mom's like, hey, go do this. And he's like, I've already been doing this for dad and for you. And, you know, George is in there with his wife and he might even go take a job in Buffalo, New York or wherever it is. Um, so, yeah, it, it shows he really doesn't want to. And he yeah goes towards there. Then eventually he comes back around. Yeah. And meets her. But he's very rude. Yeah, he is very rude. He does. You know, he's making violent love to me, mother. You know. <laughs> yeah, I love that part. And yeah. she tries to make him jealous yep. with that. Um, okay, here's probably an issue I have. I've always kind of had this issue. I don't know how well it works when they start crying and kissing. Now, that was a scene I was always confused about until this initial viewing. Okay, well then... I'm intrigued. Yes. Just, so, uh, in this scene, um, now, let's put it into per- to perspective. Sam Wainwright is essentially her boyfriend right now, right? But he's in New York. I guess it's her boyfriend. It's, I, oh, I, yeah. The relationship is loosely talked about. To me, he always was kind of like pursuing her, and she wasn't really interested yeah, in him. And that, and that's, even though she's kind of making it seem to George like, oh, he's my boyfriend. I think She's playing right. it up, making yeah. him jealous. Yeah. So, now, in this scene, um, there's a lot of sexual tension between them yeah. because they both want each other. But George does not want that because he wants to do what he wants to do. And he says that to her, too, once they get done talking or he drops the phone. He's just like, I'm going to do what I want to do. And he's shaking yeah. and stuff. <laughs> and then I think what happens is um, in that moment, he realizes that the best thing for me right now is staring me right in the face. And that's his, and I think she realizes that too. It's like, well, I, I think she's always known that. Mm-hmm. And it took George up until that moment to really get it into his head that this, that the best thing for me right now is what's staring me right in the face, not what's in the future. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where this scene comes from is um, you see that heavenly glow above them when they're both like right, in, right up against each other talking to Sam on the phone. And you hear them like kind of like shakily, like only half paying attention to what Sam is saying. And even I was half paying attention to what Sam was saying was because I was watching them as they just kind of go back and forth, looking at each other and then looking away, you know, and that tension between the two of them where they're like, oh, what are we supposed to do, you know? Yeah. And the next thing you know, they eventually snap out of it and they're just like, you are the person that, um, that I want and this is that I need right now. It makes sense. I think there there's probably a little bit more of a relationship than the movie shows us. I think you're right. Because otherwise, that's why it never really made sense. They would just... Okay, they knew each other as kids. You know, probably didn't do a whole lot together. Clearly, she's had a crush on him. That's why they said, hey, go go dance with her. And then they just had that encounter, probably her senior year. And then she goes away for four years. And clearly, she still has him on the mind. And then this is the scene where they re- reunite, reconnect, and mm-hmm. it's really possible that ever since that night he's been thinking about her and whatnot, and then they develop more of a relationship. But but then it jumps to their wedding not long yeah. after. Yeah, I do kind of wish we would have spent more time. Yeah, it's a little rushed. Yeah, I, I can agree. This is one more one small criticism that I have is that I wish it would have taken its time to really show it 
But I think that this scene alone with them kind of not not just them in the telephone, mainly that scene, but the whole scene in general really speaks a lot of volume that it really isn't technically spoken out in words. But especially that scene where they were talking on the phone, there's a lot of th- there's a lot of stuff going back and forth between the two of them. In that connection, oh, yeah. it's it's really well done. And I think yeah, and I think it's really really well done. I, I think it has a lot more depth than a lot of really than a lot of relationships that are shown in more modern films. Yeah, I, I would agree. So yeah, and then they and then as you said, they jump forward, and next thing we know is the is their wedding. <laughs> so and this is kind of where um, once again. The difference in ideals have clashed again with George is because he's getting ready to go on a honeymoon and they have, I think, two thousand dollars to yep. kind of spend on it. And then next thing I know, the depression hits the day of their wedding. Oh, that sucks. Very depressing. Yeah. Well, OK. And so that basically means that there would be a run on the bank and all the people want their money, but that's not how banks work. Mm -hmm. They take money and then they distribute it out to other people. So it's not like they're just have a stack of cash in the back room. That's what he tries to explain to them. Right. But the independently wealthy and I guess, you know, tycoon in different ways, Potter has, he, he, they're like, Potter's going to give us all of our money. Yeah. 50 cents on the dollar is what he said. Yeah. And you know why he would do that is because that would cause the building and loan to go under mm-hmm. and then he would be the only last one standing and there'd be a monopoly and he could take over everything. Right. So George knows, and this is kind of, there's kind of like a big overarching symbol, like the battle of good and evil. Mm-hmm. You know, George is the good, Potter is the evil. It's kind of black and white in that way uh so he has to stop he can't go on the honeymoon and he has to use their honeymoon money which is crazy yeah it's almost heartbreaking because oh, yeah uh he once again he came so close yep. to do what he wants and then next thing you know reality hits yeah uh, and and i do think this is also kind of uh, a commentary on small businesses versus uh large corporations as well is we do find out, I think, in an earlier scene um, when Jimmy Stewart is screaming at Potter once they make that vote, is that Potter is not in it for the customers. No. He's very much in it for the money. And George is the complete opposite, where he's in it for the customers, not the money. And right. they, this it comes out in this scene alone when he has to give up all 2000 all $19,998 of his cash because he has $2 left over at the end That's right. That's right. Um, just so people can have their money because of the depression. And it kind of goes yeah. to show the integrity and the character of George Bailey. And he even forgets that he's a married man. So, the, Yeah, but it is really neat when his wife is so understanding mm-hmm. and she's taken that home yes. from when they were kind of those teenagers and I love how his friends, the cab driver and the police officer help out. And she kind of makes that their own little romantic adventure, honeymoon getaway. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's pretty fun. Yep. And then to see how that develops. Yeah, she tries as hard as she can to get as close to George's dream as she as she could. It's, it's The scene is so sweet. Yeah, and she's, she's a pretty selfless woman, which is great. And But again, that's contrasted because... I don't want to say George is selfish, even though I think he he kind of begins that way, like, I want to do what I want. Mm-hmm. But then eventually you're like, dang, this guy can't catch a break yeah. with anything. And But I think that's part of him realizing, like, 
okay, I probably wasn't really meant for that. You know, that was more so of a selfish dream. Right. And this is what I was really meant to have, you know, settling down and having a family and keeping the town a thriving place of, you know, happiness. Yeah. And I think you're... I think you're absolutely right on that. And it's, once again, it's that reality check that George has these great ideas and he can come really close to doing what he really wants to do, which is go places and have, you know, and actually tour the world and things like that. And even, and even in that cab drive on the way to, on the way to the honeymoon, I think it's to the train, um, they're talking about all they're going to do. And at the very end, he's like, and then what? And she goes, after that, who cares? <laughs> you know, and this, this kind of goes to show that they're just, Having a lot of fun, and, and until this scene happens, of course. But yeah, it it yeah, it's such a, such a sweet sweet scene. Well, and there's quite a long montage scene mm-hmm. afterwards, isn't there? It kind of shows the progression of yeah. them expanding their business. They're getting homes for uh, these people that can't afford it, which is pretty funny with the kids and the goats. And yep. The whatnot, if I if I remember that correctly, yeah, yeah, that's when the martinis get their own place yeah. and Bailey Park is starting to expand. And this is actually a scene when, um, well, I think it happens a bit later. But one of Potter's advisors comes in and says, "You can't ignore the Bailey Park anymore. It's mm-hmm. grown a lot." And you can see Potter's like, hmm, you know, it's I like of, the Potter guy. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> and speaking of Potter, let's talk about him just for a minute. I mean, we've kind of briefly mentioned him a couple of times, but I think is I think we should really start. Uh, talking about him even more now sure because he's starting to become a really big player in this story not like he already was one anyways so as we said earlier potter is very money centered yeah and he's not very customer centered and he is in it for the money and he just wants his life dream is to run the baileys out of business and he's come so close so many times but i think one kind of small criticism i have with potter is that he's evil all the time I understand where he comes from, but he's just always evil. Right. Well, yes. Everybody else, I would say, is... They've got different dimensions to their personalities. Whereas Potter is pretty much kind of a one-dimensional character. He's always been evil, and he's always in black. And I do like how he is... He's kind of sly with certain things and cunning, where he's like... It appears like... He's like, I want to help you out. You know, I want to see you succeed, a young mm-hmm. man like you. And he's like, let's let's help each other out. You know, I don't, I'm not have to be your enemy. I've never wanted to be your enemy. Right. You've always made me out to be that. I think that's probably as close to getting any kind of character depth as just his kind yeah. of manipulative ways. But otherwise, yeah, he's probably the the flattest character. Yeah. That we that's one of the major characters. Yeah, I, I agree. And, I mean, it's not too big of a deal. Back then, it wasn't so much as a, of a cliche as it is now. Right. And I think we do have to kind of factor that in the, to our criticism is that it's not... Back then, it wasn't nearly a cliche, but it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I, I do think that Potter is very much against the idea of... Um, of, ba- of George Bailey. Mm-hmm. And I know that we, there's a lot of characters who are against his idea of his ideals, but this one, as we said, because he's so business centered, he comes off as just so greedy and someone that, someone that does not want any competition. It actually really reminds me, especially Pottersville reminds me a lot of the alternate, um, the alternate 1985 from oh, back yeah. to the future too. You know what I'm That's saying? That's a really good point. Yeah. yeah. He's basically the greedy, 
Biff, and it's all about like gambling, yeah, and, yeah, like brothels and just really bad place. It's just become this almost Las Vegas esque mm-hmm. town, uh, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it, it does because that's where the money is. That's you know once again that's more of satisfaction for him and what he thinks versus what's actually right. Right. Well, the that that really like big positive force of good George Bailey, mm-hmm. where he has all these relationships and he was this positive impact. Well, that's all taken away. Yeah. And like there is just a monopoly, and people are going to just be greedy yeah. naturally instead of you know helping, you know their fellow man be good. Right. And I think one thing that really kind of sets in stone. The difference in ideals between the hero and the villain, which is Potter and and George Bailey, is this next scene when Potter calls George into his office Mm -hmm. and begins talking to him. And he offers him absolutely everything that George has ever wanted in his life. $20,000 in salary, which is a lot back then. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, Of course, now it's about as much as you get if you're a teacher, which is you're not going to survive off of that. But back then, that's a lot of money. Yeah, that's Um, not good now. (laughs) Yeah, he said you could buy your wife a lot of clothes, a lot of nice clothes. You can move to a bigger house. He even says you could even go to Europe a couple of times a month. Mm -hmm. He gives him everything George has ever wanted. And George is sitting there just like like he at one point drops his uh, cigar and he's just like, are you you serious right now? Mm -hmm. His His... Dream is sitting right in front of him, yeah. and all he has to do is give up the boating and loan. Like that's the only thing he has to do. And he stands up and he goes, "Well, I have to, of course, you know, I have to think about it." And he's and Potter's like, "Oh yeah, of course, take all the time you need." <laughs> and Potter's like super nice to him, and everything. And then he goes, "Okay," and he shakes his hand and stops and he goes, "And now wait a minute, no." Yeah, I and love he, that he, scene. Yeah, and he has like once again fantasy versus reality. And he's just like, no, this isn't right. He realizes what he's done. Yeah, and he's like, I can't back on this, and I'll never, I'll never uh, come back to you because you're not, you're not the right person, or your your ideals were so manipulative and yeah. broken. And he, ha- of course, goes off on him again. But yeah, it goes to show that difference in ideals and how close, how so very close George comes to actually getting to what he wants in his dream, you know, everything. And then it's he has to say, no, I can't do that. Because it's not, that's not the integrity, that's not the right thing to do. Because it would be giving up the building alone and then everything be owned by Potter. Yep. Uh, the scene is incredibly well done, yeah. incredibly well acted, especially once he shakes his hand and then he lets go. And it just like dawns on him like, mm-hmm. I'm betraying everything that I've fought for, I've been taught, and I truly do believe in. And honestly, this scene is very uh, similar to The Temptation of Christ yeah, in the Desert. Yeah. Because in it's found in the I believe it's in two gospels in the Bible, one of them I think being Matthew, where Jesus goes into the desert and he is tempted by Satan and Satan offers him everything he wants. Mm-hmm. He says, I will give you all of these things if you just bow down before me. And that's basically what Potter's doing. So it's a really kind of good representation of that scene where it's like, yeah, I'll give you everything you want, but it's pretty much a lie because yeah. it comes at a sacrifice like a huge cost yeah that isn't factored in in the moment it's like okay i'm only thinking about myself and how this will affect me and my family will be doing great but yeah the town i'm sure even if he did take that bet the, or the offer not a bet <laughs> mm-hmm. if he did take that offer 
then the town would still become Pottersville. Oh, yeah. You know, because then he would be able to, you know, George Bailey would work for him and would have no, nobody would be able to oppose him and offer right. any kind of competition in the, not just the business spectrum, but the moral spectrum. Yeah. And it kind of goes to even show that, uh, that cheating is just never going to work mm-hmm. in the first place because George, when he's even confronted with his dream sitting right in front of him, he says that just on the account of that's not the right thing, that's not the integrity, that's not that's not the right thing to do, he says no when he could have easily taken it and been selfish and taken everything for himself and would have been able to do whatever he wanted to do. But at this point, he's like, I can't because... That's not what, that's not the Bailey thing to do. It's not what I would do, you know, things like that. It's, it's, it kind of goes to show that we see George change a lot over the course of the movie. Potter never changes. And it kind of just goes to show that, um, that Potter is always living in the moment Mm -hmm. where George is really thinking of the future and every action, every decision that he has to make always has a ramification that happens later in the later in the future exactly yeah george is an active growing character and just because he kind of has these like major relapses doesn't mean he's not growing because through those relapses he grows whereas potter it makes sense for him to be a a stagnant character because there's no way that evil can grow you know greed can can positively grow yeah it's more of like a deterioration or stagnation yeah yeah it makes sense and then, of course, skipping on to the very next scene, he's walking home and he's thinking about these things. I thought this is so, so good. Mm-hmm. This scene when he walks up the stairs and it's kind of, and he's playing back in his head the conversation he had with Potter and then a conversation he had uh, earlier in the movie where he's just like, I want to go place, I want to build big things, you know. Yeah. And he's relishing in the idea that he came so close and then it's all gone. But then the next thing he knows, reality hits him and Mary's pregnant. Yeah. Well, and that shows you that he's not he, he's not focused on living his life. He's focused on uh his friend Sam Wainwright who mm-hmm. went to be this rich tycoon with all this yeah. stuff and his brother went off to be this major war hero and everybody's went on to live these wonderfully adventurous lives. Mm-hmm. And he has a wonderful prosperous life too, mm-hmm. but he's so focused on living somebody else's life and not being satisfied with his own. And that's that's ultimately what the movie is yeah, about. Exactly. And ultimately he figures that out the hard way. Yeah. You know? He absolutely does. And it's actually this next scene when that montage comes about and uh, we see everybody else doing everything else. Harry gets put into the army. Uh-huh. Um yeah. uh yeah, his Mary kind of Mary and Mrs. Bailey and then Mrs. uh and then uh, Mary's mom, they help out yeah. in terms of nursing. Everyone's – Sam, of course, uh, his company grows. Everyone's doing something except for George. And George can't go to the army because of – on the account of his own ear, how it's kind mm-hmm. of – how it's broke. Um, and then he has – I mean, he tries to do something where he uh, he does the town curfew and things like yeah, that. Yeah, that but, was funny. <laughs> yeah, but it kind of – he can't find a way to get out of Bedford Falls. And, and that's – what this montage really is all about is seeing everybody else and how everybody else is doing so many good things. And, uh, Harry got a medal of honor and, and all this kind of stuff. But George can't, he is stuck in Bedford Falls, no matter how hard he tries to get out. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really good lesson in appreciating the life that you have Mm -hmm. and you've been given. And yeah, like if he did seek that kind of like 
I don't know. It's it's still just very self-centered because it's all about like, what do I want to do? Like mm-hmm. he's not thinking about what his wife or his kids or his family, you know, what's good for them. It's like, this is what I've always wanted to do. And it's just kind of that it's, it's this weird, like almost like a coming of age yeah. story in a way, except he's an adult and right. it's coming in of age story for uh, adults. Right. With there children and married. <laughs> yeah. It's essentially a reality check for adults. <laughs> But right after this scene is when the bank examiner the bank examiner comes. This is when it gets serious. Yeah, this is when the movie really gets serious. And this is where right. things crash yeah. really fast. So what happens is, I think his name is Uncle Billy. Yeah. He is yes. given $8,000 in cash. And it's to pay off, to pay the bank. And that's a healthy amount of money to pay the <laughs> bank. Um, and so he... We, it cuts to him and the bank. He's just writing down some final things. And then next thing he knows, Potter comes up. And he goes to you know, mess with Potter and kind of joke <laughs> with him and you know make fun of him and stuff like that. Accidentally puts the $8,000 in the envelope. That's in the envelope in the newspaper that gives it back to Potter. Yeah. And he goes to pay the bank. And the bank's like, uh, usually you want to come with your deposit with you. And he goes, <laughs> oh. And then he, he goes nuts. And then Potter figures out what's going on. And, of course, he's very sly and keeps the money for himself. And come to find out, this is very, very bad because this ends up being bankruptcy. Someone's going to jail. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. This takes such a serious turn where mm-hmm. I, it's it's so real. Like, once again, it's so real because I just see the total desperation yeah. in both of them, especially in George, where he's like, you old fool. Like, you could have just ruined our lives. Mm-hmm. Like, seriously tanked our lives. He's like, I'm the father of three children. You know, I've I've got a lot on my plate as it is already and yeah but i know potter is just so devious though Mm -hmm. to keep that because potter's like i'm gonna send you to jail yeah you know and this is the perfect thing like potter will win at all costs the end justifies the means and it also does make you kind of mad at uh billy though uncle billy though because it's like you fool you can't even uh, but but then shame on them for trusting him with $8,000. That's true. Yeah. They know he is incredibly forgetful because he has all these strings to help remind him. Mm-hmm. But it's like, dude, if you're that forgetful, then uh, what's th- they shouldn't have trusted him with that kind of money. Right. Right. No, I, I totally agree. And it's and yeah, this scene with but even before that with the bank examiner, it's kind of funny how the bank examiner has to wait because not only is Harry on a personal phone call that's long distance. Um, but they're waiting for Uncle Billy to get back home to say hi to Harry. Next thing I know, Violet comes in and she needs some money. So George kind of helps her out a little bit. And then he he walks out of his office when with some lipstick on lipstick on his uh. net, on his uh, cheek. And the bank the bank examiner sees all of this, and it looks very very bad on them. But it just kind of goes to show that it's not about the money. It's just about helping out other people, especially with Violet. Right. And stuff like that. And eventually, they get around to the bank examiner, kind of. Then, next thing, first, they have to go find $8,000. Then, George Billy screams at Uncle Billy and says, and kind of gets really <laughs> selfish and says, one of us is going to jail and it's not, not going to be me. me. And walks out. And it's really sad, too, because you got, there's also Uncle Billy's um, wife had passed away not too long ago. And it, kind of in a passing line saying that things have gotten worse in, in terms of remembering things, mm. especially since kind of I think that. Julie's her name. Yeah. has left and it's really hard hitting scene and kind of goes to show even even the selfishness 
of of George coming out. Now, did you have the subtitles on when watching this movie? Yeah, I did. I'm sure that would help with some of those details like that. Cause mm-hmm. I totally forgot. Yeah, and missed that detail. It's a very quick line. Yeah. Well, and of course, it seems like when your life is stressful, then every little thing is stressful and gets to you because it's very realistic when he goes home to his family and Zuzu is sick and the other daughter is listen to me play on the piano mm-hmm. and look at me do this and well no he has four kids I said mm-hmm. he had three in the beginning and then there's the little one the yep. little boy is like daddy yes. look at me excuse me excuse me, excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> and you know everything is terrible and frustrating and he's not going to let his wife in on anything mm-hmm. and he gets so depressed, he like starts throwing, kicking things over and yelling at his daughter for doing this or that. And he's clearly so disheartened and discouraged. Yeah. Like it is just, you can just see the pain on his face. And this is when he somehow reasons with himself that his family would be better off without him. Mm-hmm. If And of course, this is all born from selfishness. Right. They'd be better off without me if I just hurl myself into the icy depths. Right. There's a scene, the next scene in this movie, um, before George actually throws himself off the bridge, makes the movie make a lot more sense. But yeah, it's kind of cool too, because when George comes home, we didn't know he had three kids. We just, because the last time we heard, he was just pregnant with a kid. And next thing you know, he has three more and there are four kids in the house. Everyone's going nuts. And of course he, and it's really sad too, because um, the youngest son, he's just kind of messing with his dad. And the dad Mm -hmm. just kind of looks at him and just grabs him and just starts crying. And it's like bizarre, yeah. yeah. And it, and then sure. there's it's crazy, <laughs> yeah. And then when he knocks over um, the like little models in front of the of, and right behind the the front glass, and he like knocks it over and kicks it and stuff. The lighting in that scene just kind of is from below him, yeah. and it kind of just shows the dur- like the deranged uh, setting that he's in mm, and the yeah. state that he's just like so like insanely stressed out. Yeah, and so he moves on to Potter, and he's just like, I need help. And he's like, I don't know what I'm supposed mm-hmm. to do. Yeah. Uh, things are so bad right now. He essentially is on his knees to Potter because this is the last thing he knows how to do. Right. And he tells Potter, he's like, I have a $15,000 life insurance policy right here and I will sell it to you. Like He's literally giving his entire life to Potter to save the company or to save him. And oh. he's just like, I, and he's like, please. And Potter goes, this is funny because about a year ago about this time, you were in here making fun of me. And so he says, <laughs> in fact, right now, I'm going to call the police yeah. and have you arrested. <laughs> yeah, and then and then George just kind of stands up and goes, and just looks around and then just slowly walks out. And yeah. mm, it hits so hard. And then, of course, Potter still has the $8,000 next to him. And Potter could solve all of his problems. But George is ready to sell his soul to the devil. Yeah, essentially. essentially. And pretty much literally God presents another option. Mm -hmm. When George is at his lowest moment, uh, thankfully he rejected. I would say he did reject taking this kind of evil path. Um, And I love when Clarence jumps in the water and Mm -hmm. he says, what are you doing there? He said, I was saving you. I said, what do you mean? I was saving you. And he's like, I had to jump in to save you. So right. you wouldn't jump. And right. I love that backwards logic. <laughs> right. I also kind of want to analyze this uh, this scene where he's at the bridge real quick. Because I mentioned earlier that there's one detail that I always miss. And that was the life insurance policy. Yeah. Literally, if he died, he's worth, in Paracessus to him, mm. he's worth more dead than wow. he is alive. That's $15,000 more. That can not only 
give his family some money, but also help pay the building loan. Yeah, that's a really good point that I had never realized before mm-hmm. at all. I know that's, spoiler alert, that's kind of the premise, that, well, not kind of, okay, The Death of a Salesman, mm-hmm. wonderful play, amazingly written, um, definitely not It's a Wonderful Life yeah. with, it's not got the positive spin on it, but that's kind of the thought of the main character, Willie Loman, is if I if I kill myself, then my family will be set. Right. And the tragic part, and this is true to real life, is if they find out it's a suicide, they don't pay out. It has to be like a legitimate accident. Mm. So that's the that's him not even thinking about it. He's like, yeah, you know, my family would be better off without me. You know, they're they would be financially set. Everything would be better. You know, like. As if, and that kind of comes back to the money and greed part, like, you know, money is more important than my life, which is just totally insane. Yeah. So that's a really good point. I never, I totally missed that talking about the life insurance policy because he's thinking if I, if I die, then they get the money and it's all taken care of, but it doesn't work that way. And it also kind of goes to show that to Potter... He's just putting a price on a human, essentially. It's disgusting. Yeah. yeah. He even, and the scariest part, of, I think it's one of the scariest parts of this movie is when Potter says, you're worth more, you're worth more dead than you are alive. And George just kind of sits there and he's like, crap, he's right, you know? Yeah. And it's just really, uh, really evil how yeah. Potter just says it so nonchalantly. And he's like, that just really shows you. Because, you know, oh, maybe Potter is just this crashy old man, mm-hmm. you know, he just is this. But no, he's truly evil because he would rather people like George be dead and him to run the town and, you know, run his little Bedford Falls, yeah. Potterville world than that. Uh, yeah, it, that and that is that does show you the depth of like the evil, like mm-hmm. just like how black his heart really is. Right, right. And then now we get to the, the bridge scene where he's about to jump off and then Clyde yeah. saves him. Yeah. And I do really like, um, I really like this when his life totally changes and he's, he's still like able to like interact with people, but he's not a part of it. It's mm-hmm. weird. Uh, and I love how it's introduced because he can hear. He's like, that's funny. I, I have, haven't heard out of this ears and ear in this years. You yeah. know, um, it must've been the icy water. And it's like, no. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's like, oh, yeah, the, your lips stop bleeding. I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. It's weird, yeah, because it, that never happened. Yeah. And as soon as his pedals are gone and all sorts of stuff. Yes, exactly. And it's just a totally different world. And it takes him a really long time to finally get it. Yeah. Whereas it's interesting because in the source material, they don't have as much time. Mm-hmm. But he does, like, his doubt is gone right so quickly whereas this it takes him forever and i love these types of movies where they it takes a while i feel like it takes a while to journey through the different areas and stages and see how everything's changed and it it, they're like constantly needing more proof Mm -hmm. you know okay going to a bar is not going to do it for me you know i just must have had something weird to drink or too much to drink i better go home you know oh but then he meets his mom and this is a, honestly kind of a dark scene when he meets his mom because it's really darkly lit mm-hmm. and she just looks like a do- totally different person in that lighting and she's very kind of menacing and just very unfriendly and you just see it's really sad how everybody's turned out. Mary's yeah. an old spinster and Violet is 
Ugh, this pretty bad floozy, and this becomes Sin City, essentially. Mm-hmm. And all, all, the ultimate proof is always going to the graveyard. It seems like in a Christmas Carol and Back to the Future, yep, and all the stuff. They always have to go to the graveyard. No, it's true. Yep, yep. I I totally agree. And this this scene I love, um, because there are so many. There are a couple of scenes way earlier in the movie where he sees where you see George as walking through the town and yeah. um that scene where with him and Violet a couple of times um or when they're getting ready to go on the honeymoon you just see him throughout the town and then there's and then the last time he's actually in town like in downtown mm-hmm. uh, Bedford Falls he's running through and um you see all the music kind of going nuts and all of the neon signs saying oh girls are here or yeah. <laughs> here's a dance club and then you see Violet like being thrown out of a dance club being arrested yeah. and and he punches the cop, yeah, his friend. Yeah, he punches the cop, and it's all and all this kind of stuff. It just keeps building and building, and he goes to see his mom, and his mom is like, "I don't know who you are. Get on my face." Yeah, everybody's got these horrible lives. Yeah, yeah. and divorce, families left them, right, unmarried. Yeah, and like, like we said earlier, it's all about the money now because mm-hmm. Ma is now has boarding school. Um, Mary became a librarian. His dad and his brother both died, and they're in. Mm-hmm. And I love the music in this scene when he goes to the cemetery. Again, it's just so dark and everything, yeah. and um, then it kind of, and then it even goes for desperation when he want, and he goes to meet Mary, who's closing up the library yeah. after he forces that was it hard. Yeah, after he forces it out of Clarence that we're we're asking where she at, and this scene is so hard to watch because it takes him from Mary, and she runs into the bar, and then they throw him out, and then he runs off again, and man, this scene is so hard to watch, mm-hmm. and then George is back on the bridge again, and he's like, I I understand now what my life is and he says i want give me my life back again god i just want it back and the snow starts falling and mm-hmm. uh so it's so powerful this scene is just it I, once again it reminded of back to the future part two where um where if one person is left in control then this is what this is the outcome essentially it's yeah. no longer bedford falls it's now pottersville run completely by money and by an evil corporation that wouldn't have been a thing if the Baileys hadn't left. Right. And you see the ripple effect mm-hmm. with Mr. Gower. Like, oh, he went to jail. Yep. And Harry was never there to save those people on the transport plane. So they all died. So it's like so many people have died and gone to jail. And he's like, oh, his family was divorced or they left him. And Right. It's really bad. Um, ultimately, what happens. But I do really love how they technically portrayed it with the lighting because everything is like so bright with the city and whatnot. It's like so much brighter than it was before, but all the characters are normally portrayed in shadows. Yeah. Um, Especially when he goes back to the house. Yeah. And everyone's, everyone's a silhouette in that scene. Yeah. Everybody's a silhouette and you just see lots of the lighting from above. So you see lots of like downcast shadows and everything is so dim and Mm -hmm. it just like, everybody's like so suspicious and bittered and just, really cold-hearted about everything and um and honestly it's a logical outgrowth of what would have happened absolutely it's totally logical of what would have happened and it's this like we mentioned they really expounded upon this from the short story and i think they did everything just right yeah all of the additions i love all the additions yeah. it, it makes a lot of sense it really fleshes out a lot of and there are, of course there are a few differences but it really fleshes out and really makes you understand where George Bailey is in all this and, and stuff like that. And it, of course, the film says this, and Clarence says this to him, he says that you have no idea how much influence you have on 
anybody else you come in contact with. Yeah. And he says that just because you think that your life is hard now, but you may think that, but at the same time, you've helped other people do so many great things, like your brother Harry, who is who went on to get a medal of honor for saving that for saving those people. Yeah. That if you weren't there, which in this reality he wasn't, that never happened. And this is the outcome of maybe even good people not being around or people being in their place in society. If they're not, if they they're not there, this is where it, it ends up, and things like that. And it's it's it, it's a very nice reminder of contentment with where your life is at yeah and how it's not all about it's not always about your dreams not to say Mm -hmm. you shouldn't pursue them but at the same time you need to have a reality check and say like where am i you know and and things like that i do think it's a little more tragic in the short story where she is married to a drunk yeah and that would be a lot harder for me anyway if i was in his shoes I mean, it's still hard, like, oh, she just became an old maid and whatnot, but being married to a drunk is more hard. Mm. But I do love the end of the movie when she's like, I've been on the phone with everybody and they're just like pouring and pouring money, like way more money than he ever would have dreamed of or imagined. And Mm. it just shows like they might not be rich, even though they have a really nice house, honestly. And he's got four kids, so stop complaining, dude. Right, right. (laughs) Even though they're not like, I don't know rich in his mindset he realizes like he's like so rich in family and friends and like he wouldn't trade that for anything right which yeah i I love the end of that yeah and this this ending honestly almost every time i watch it i'd get teared up and i'm just like oh it's so it's just so heartwarming because it's not like once again it's not about the money right this scene even though everyone brings money it's not about the money and how rich george is going to be because of all this it's about helping the guy out and sitting up to the evil corporation, which is Potter in this sense. And the reason why there's money there is for the way they can pay off the bank mm-hmm. and they can um, once again, regain that building loan and things like that. And it shows that George has had a hun- enormous impact on Bedford Falls, whether he thinks he does or whether he likes it or not, or whether he likes being there, it's very clear that there's the butterfly effect and Mm -hmm. that everyone who's there, and especially at the end when they start singing that song where it's like... um, Old old Lang Syne. Yeah, that's the one. And it's so good. (laughs) And, of course, Clarence gets his wings and it's all happy ending. And this is, I think, one of those movies where the happy ending ending is needed because it... Because, once again, it's a wonderful life. Just because you don't like where you're at now doesn't mean that that's not where you're supposed to be. And that's one of the things I love about this ending is that George is not liked where he's not liked where he's been almost his entire life. But it's not about where he wants to be. It's about the people he's affecting. And that seeing everyone come back and help him out is so heartwarming to see. So, Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for It's a Wonderful Life? Oh, my goodness. Well, this is a family movie for me. This is one that I watch every year. And this year actually was my first time really sitting down and really digging deep and analyzing this movie. And I took extensive notes, partly because I've seen this movie so many times. So I was able to make connections really easily from new things that I saw and tie that to other things that I saw. And one of the things I wrote down in my notes here, or actually a couple of things, is that um, It's a Wonderful Life isn't, once I said it again, it isn't about the money. It's about um, it's about where you are in life. And Potter is very much a representation of that because 
uh, George says that he's a warped, frustrated old man and he acts like people are cattle because that's where the money is at for Potter. And that's not necessarily the right thing to do as this movie is shown. It's all about integrity and things like that. And this movie is very much telling us that, once again, it's not about if you like we are in life, it's about who you're affecting and things like that. And to kind of take what you have for granted because you're not going to last very long. And everything that you do has an effect on everything else that everything else that you don't see and all sorts of stuff. And yeah, I absolutely love this movie from beginning to end. This movie moves so fast. And that's one thing I love about it is that it's, it, it's pacing is so well done that as I mentioned earlier, it's sometimes hard for me, you know, a couple of times it was hard for me to write down notes because things are just, flew by and I had to pause it and finish writing out my notes and then continue the scene because there are so many things happening in, in, uh, in so many different scenes that all at once. So for me, I'm going to have to give It's a Wonderful Life a 10 out of 10. It's a super high recommend. It's not one of your regular old time classics, I would say. It's definitely one that's lasted all the ages because it's such a timeless tale and one that I absolutely enjoy, one that I think is great one that i think is been also kind of impactful in my own life so yeah 10 out of 10 high recommend oh yeah uh ah. <laughs> <laughs> well i'm at a loss for words what more can i say about this movie except that it is able to teach just like foundational lessons that are important for every single person to learn and keep in mind while still telling a great story. And there's so many other different elements to it, but it all matters. And yeah, the pacing is incredible. Like the movie does move so fast, but at the same time, it just, it feels like, oh man, I've been with George Bailey for mm -hmm. so long now. And, you know, I've known him for so long because in a way we kind of are George Bailey. Like we've all kind of had those feelings that's what makes the movie so great is we can connect with the characters and we can relate with their situations regardless of whether like that's exactly you know our situation or not but it it really is a heartwarming movie uh with like kind of tragic moments at times which just makes it more true to real life but then it also just highlights like well just remember how truly like precious life is and like how much you've been given so yeah it's it's a, an incredible movie. There's really no issues with it at all. The only minor, minor issue was that of Potter's character, which really is not that big of a hurdle. It's really not that big of a deal at all. So I, I'm i also giving It's a Wonderful Life 10 out of 10. It, it receives the highest recommendation. And honestly, it doesn't necessarily have to be watched during Christmas. Uh, I think it's a movie you could really watch any time. But, yeah. Yeah. It's it, amazing. <laughs> it, it really is. It's a wonderful film. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I know I kind of... There is also one thing I was really curious about uh, when I was watching this movie, which would be I really want to know uh, what this would do to someone if someone one day just woke up and found out that they never really existed. You know, mm -hmm. I was... And, of course, this movie kind of takes a more fantastic tale. But this one... But, like, with that idea, I would kind of wonder what kind of side effects would happen psychologically, of course, with someone who... Uh, just kind of woke up one day and finds out no one knows who they are. Uh, they never, no one, they never existed in anybody else's minds and things like that. So, yeah, that'd be interesting to see, like, what kind of effect. Of course, that's kind of morbid, but it would just be, it's interesting to think about, like, what kind of things could happen because of that. Yeah. So. And like we said, we've seen this approach in other movies. Mm -hmm. 
but this one, none of them come as near as good a job as like teaching the lesson yeah. and just warming your heart and just showing you how much you have to be grateful for. So listeners, that does it for our review of It's a Wonderful Life. That finishes off our very first Christmas special. And we just want to wish you a Merry Christmas. And we hope that you are really enjoying today. And regardless whether you're with family or not, we just hope that just like this movie shows that you're able to uh, count your blessings and uh, show that you've been given more than you realize and uh, we really look forward to coming back and doing more great movie reviews in 2018. We've got a lot of great content coming up. The schedule will be released. Uh, if it's not up already, then it will be released very soon. And we're going to be doing a lot of uh, different things. We're really looking to kind of expand Silver Screen Guide, take it to the next level, uh, bring you guys more into participation and offer you more content for uh, participating with us uh, like we said we'll get those details out uh, very early uh, 2018 but we've got a lot planned and we're going to do a lot in 2018 we're really really excited and we want to say thank you for making 2017 a great year we have uh, just tens of thousands of acts uh, people accessing the podcast listening all over the world in basically every continent in every country uh, we're really humbled by that we're really grateful for for that so we just want to say thank you again and you're not going to be sorry because 2018 is going to be even better than 2017 but we had a blast doing this in uh, 2017 kicking this off so we're really looking forward to jumping into the next year. Make sure to follow us on your favorite social media platforms and sign up through email. That way you can always stay on top and never miss anything at all. But once again, listeners, we love to say thank you because we really are grateful. We love doing this just for fun, but uh, we love sharing this with you all as well. So we will see you next time in 2018. I might be getting, no, no, these dates are right. I'm sorry. The way I copy and paste it from IMDb is a little confusing. <laughs>